0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show. Millions of people
1: have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. This week's episode contains sex, lies, a love triangle, a murder, and one attempted murder, all with one connection. When I first heard the story, my mouth was just hanging open. It's so full of twists, with one diabolical mastermind behind it all. Annalisa Raymundo was found beaten and stabbed in her condominium, but it would take years for her killer to come to light. In fact, it would take another crime to lead authorities to find the connection. Annalisa Raimundo was a 32-year-old Harvard graduate with a master's from Columbia. The Filipino-American was born in Brooklyn, New York, the daughter of Dr. Renato Raimundo and his wife Susan. Dreaming of becoming a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, she worked at Purdue Pharma in Stanford, Connecticut. The Raimondos described their daughter as ambitious and hardworking, and she had worked her way up through the company. It was at Purdue Pharma where she met her future boyfriend, a research scientist named Nelson Sessler. Little did she know, this relationship would be the cause of her death. The events of her death are like something you'd see in a movie, her sister said. For investigators, it would become a roller coaster ride of a case. On November 8th of 2002, Annalisa decided to work from home that day. After rising in the ranks at the company, it was one of the perks. She had purchased a condominium in the upscale community of Harbor Drive in Stanford. It was a quiet, gated area near the water. The two-story condo was just the type of place one would enjoy as a reward for all the hard work. That day was typical in the complex. Most of its tenants were at work, and there was the usual hustle and bustle of landscapers and FedEx trucks coming and going. All was normal until dispatchers received a very odd 911 call. The woman on the other end of the line said, I think a guy has attacked my neighbor. She didn't give a description of the suspect or identify herself, but she gave an address. The responding officer on the scene, Greg Holt, was a 20-year veteran with several homicides under his belt. He said what he saw that day sticks with him. The front door was ajar. Annalisa Ramundo lay dead on her back. She'd been brutally beaten and stabbed nine times, even in her face. There'd obviously been a blitz attack right there in her foyer. Plants were knocked over. Dirt was everywhere. Assisting Greg Holt was investigator Tom McGinty. They found no apparent forced entry. Annalisa might have let the killer into the condo. They think she was hit on the head with a barbell that was laying in the foyer that she used for workouts and then stabbed. Being in great physical shape, she fought hard with the attacker. It looked like they went around and around in circles. Blood was everywhere. There was the dirt on the floor from the broken flower pots. But at some point, she had lost this fight. As the day progressed into evening, the investigators were surprised when a man showed up at the condo, saying he was Annalise's boyfriend. Nelson Cessler said he was there to take her to dinner. Holt and McGinty took him to the complex's boathouse until they could question him. They found his demeanor very odd. To start, he had fallen asleep while waiting on them. Plus, he didn't seem to express any emotion and didn't really question what happened to his girlfriend. Not the typical response they had encountered in situations like this. It caused them to be highly suspicious. They delved further into the relationship. They found that Nelson and Annalisa both worked for Purdue Pharma. Initially, when they'd started dating, they kept the relationship very low-key. Friends described both of them as exact opposites. Annalisa was athletic and accomplished. She lit up the room when she walked in. Nelson, on the other hand, was very quiet and subdued. And their views on the relationship also differed. She was ready to settle down while he was not ready to commit but as things got more serious, they felt more comfortable going public. Only a month before her murder, Annalisa Nelson attended her sister's wedding together as a couple. And videos from that show, they show them laughing and dancing. There was no sign of discord. Annalisa's family was notified of her death at their home over 700 miles away in Michigan. Her sister Bernadette recalls hearing the knock at the door in the middle of the night. She was the one that had to break the news to her parents. And they were all in disbelief. It wasn't like their daughter lived in a violent neighborhood or had any enemies. They didn't even know what the motive could be behind this whole crime. So since the focus was on the boyfriend, Nelson, police were looking hard at his motions that day and the night before. Admitting that he spent the night at the condo, he insisted that he last saw his girlfriend when he left for work that morning. Things were fine, and Annalisa was well, he declared. And after looking into his story, the investigators found that it rang true. He had indeed been at work all day, and his co-workers confirmed this, and when his clothes were examined, they were devoid of any blood. So, with an ironclad alibi, they had to eliminate him as a suspect. But they still felt he had to be at the center of it all. their guts they felt something was wrong and they knew he wasn't being entirely honest with them about all he knew then a report arose of a very suspicious character who seemed to be talking a lot about the murder this guy turned out to be a petty criminal named Gary Riley but he too was cleared when it was discovered he was nothing more than a big talker he was released as a suspect So authorities began to focus on that mysterious 911 call. They found that it came from a payphone down the street. After interviewing all the neighbors, they found that no one had reported anything or made that phone call. And they had nothing to go on since the caller refused to give her name, abruptly hanging up instead. Investigators Holt and McGinty had nothing, and the case went cold after five months. Then another story emerged that would link to the crime and eventually shed light on Annalise's killer. And this part of the story is absolutely insane. On March 23rd of 2003, Paul Christos was rushed to the hospital by his wife, Sheila Davalu with stab wounds. And when asked about how he obtained the stab wounds, Paul would tell a story that would shed a light onto a diabolical mastermind. At home, Sheila suggested they play a game, and it was supposed to be an innocent experiment. One person would blindfold and tie the other up, holding objects up, and then that other person would have to guess what that object was. To most, it sounds sexual, and while it may have had sexual overtones, Paul said it wasn't intended as such. So first, he tied and blindfolded his wife, and he held several objects up to her like a camera, and then it was her turn. After a few objects, Paul said he felt a heavy thrust on his chest, and then another, and he heard Sheila cry, oh my god, you're bleeding. Paul had been stabbed twice, but he noticed the bleeding wasn't severe, and he felt more concerned with his wife at this point. He feared that he had, she had a seizure or she fell, causing the knife to plunge into him, so he was thinking more of her than himself, and Sheila was in an absolute panic. Calmly, he urged her to just call 911. He watched her pace around the room while on the phone. The line's busy. I can't get through, she insisted. He urged her to keep trying. Although his wounds weren't severe, he still needed treatment. Finally, he heard her speaking to someone saying, things just got out of hand. We were roughhousing. After some time, Paul was concerned when the ambulance didn't show up so they would have to get to the hospital themselves. Now, most of us would hurry when getting a loved one to the hospital to get help, but not Sheila. Paul recalls she drove slowly the whole way. And when they got to Westchester County Hospital, rather than pull up to the emergency room entrance, she parked in an isolated part of the lot. Thinking this was very odd, he would soon be in for another surprise. As he lay on the back seat, Sheila opened the back door, lunged at him, and then stabbed him once in the chest. And this time, she nicked his heart, causing real damage. Luckily, a passerby saw the attack, saving Paul's life. Paul now knew that the first wounds were not an accident. For whatever reason, his wife had just tried to kill him. So, Sheila was taken into questioning despite trying to flee the scene. She appeared distraught, crying, saying that she loved her husband. Sticking with the story that it was a game that got out of hand, the authorities pushed more for clarification. Her cell phone had fallen out of the car and was found by police at the hospital. And when they searched her last calls, it was to someone named Nelson. So does that name sound familiar? What's this connection, and is this the same Nelson? So, sensing something was up, police that had questioned Sheila then contacted Stanford police. And they decided to question Nelson Sessler again. At first, he claimed he was just friends with Sheila Davaloo, and she too worked at Purdue Pharma. But McGinty and Holt weren't falling for this, and they called his bluff. Nelson finally admitted that he'd had a sexual relationship with Sheila, And at one point, he was seeing both Sheila and Annalisa at the same time. But as things got more serious with Annalisa, he broke things off with Sheila. After Annalisa's death, the relationship was rekindled. That call that night was her asking him to dinner. And there was no record of a 911 call. Nelson was very shocked to learn that Sheila was married. He claims he had no idea. It was impossible, he said. He'd spent many nights at her home. He would have known if she was married. Holt and McGinty were starting to realize that there was a lot more to Sheila Davalu than they could ever imagine. When she met her current husband, Paul Christos, she was already married to her first husband, and soon after they divorced and Paul and Sheila were married. They met while both were attending New York Medical College. Sheila was a research scientist at Purdue, while Paul was earning a degree in epidemiology. They had been married for over two years when she started to regularly tell tales of a wild love triangle at her workplace. Jack, Lisa, and Melissa were all co-workers at Purdue. And Jack was seeing both women, much to the dismay of Melissa. Sheila discussed the three all the time, even seeking Paul's advice to pass along to her friend, Melissa. Finding the situation amusing, he always participated in the discussion. At one point, Sheila even asked to borrow some night vision goggles he owned to lend them to Melissa so she could spy on Jack and Lisa. And it wasn't just something she talked about with Paul. Sheila had a close friend at work, and she discussed the situation with her. Women are generally more open with friends than their husbands. And this friend knew that Melissa was actually Sheila. And Jack and Lisa were, you guessed it, Nelson and Annalisa. So police were piecing this all together like pieces of a puzzle. But it would take talking to Nelson and Paul about Sheila to get all the details. Paul said his wife had a brother with mental and emotional problems. Their home. But because her family had very strong views about marriage, especially her brother, they had to take special measures when he stayed at the house to brother from finding out they were married. Paul would go stay at a hotel, taking all his personal effects. So the brother never knew he lived there. And this was a frequent occurrence. Now it all made sense. There never was a brother. This was when Nelson stayed at the house and why he never realized his mistress was married. The motive to get rid of Paul became clear. Sheila did, in fact, have a family with strong views about divorce. When she divorced the first time, they were very vocal with their disapproval, and there was no way she could tell them she was getting divorced for a second time. In her mind, it was much easier to plan the death of her husband. He needed out of the picture for...
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: Good. Instead of calling 911, Nelson was called by Sheila to arrange dinner plans. She claimed to the police that she'd been canceling dinner plans with him because Paul was hurt. But no one was buying her story. She was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Nelson wondered if she could have had anything to do with the death of Annalisa. Police were wondering the same thing, and Sheila became suspect number one. At this point, everything against her was circumstantial evidence, all except for a small drop of blood found on the bathroom sink handle at the condo. The killer had washed their hands after killing Annalisa, and previously police had been unable to link the DNA to anyone. When they compared it to Sheila's, they got a match. McGinty called his partner, saying, We've got her. Sheila was already serving a sentence of 25 years for the attempted murder of Paul Christos in a New York prison. Eight years later, in 2012, she stood trial for the 2002 murder of Annalisa Raimundo. The prosecution had the DNA the fact that she'd left the office that day at work, and evidence from a search warrant. At her home, they found two stun guns and a lockpick set. In a surprise move, Sheila chose to represent herself in court. Her defense style was very steady, polite, and professional. The opposite of the picture the prosecution was painting, that of a conniving, manipulative, obsessive woman capable of murder. The trial lasted two and a half weeks and was anything but boring. First up to testify was Nelson Sessler. His demeanor was very low-key. When police had first questioned him, they took him to be unemotional. But this was simply his personality. His friends and co-workers described him as laid-back, even possibly too laid back. It led many to the misconception of not caring. And this is kind of how he appeared on the stand. Nelson was simply unaware of how obsessed Sheila had become with him. While he viewed the relationship as purely sexual, she viewed it as something more. And she went to very great lengths to situate herself in his life. Like the time he flew to Las Vegas, While he was at the airport, who should he run into but Sheila? And by coincidence, she sat right beside him on the flight. But it wasn't coincidence. She had hacked into his voicemail and knew he had planned the trip. Nelson also testified for the prosecution about how she used his grief to work her way back into his life after he'd broken things off with her. And while everyone else at work was hesitant to mention anything about the death to him, Sheila was the one who provided a shoulder to cry on. The most bizarre part of Sheila representing herself was when she cross-examined those closest to her. Paul Christos took the stand, describing his cross-examination from his ex-wife to be, quote, surreal. To him, it fit perfectly well with her arrogant personality. His ex-wife's defense was, during that time of the attack, she'd been depressed and abusing medication. She questioned him asking, didn't she look distressed and crazy during the stabbing? To which he replied, yes. The prosecution maintained that Paul was an obstacle that she needed out of the way. On the morning of the attack, Sheelan acted as if nothing were out of the ordinary. She talked with friends on the phone, even got her nails done not the typical mourning of a woman who would later stab her husband. The prosecution had a lot going for them. Sheila didn't have a solid alibi for the time of the murder since she checked out of the office. And there was also that tape of the 911 call. Voice recognition software confirmed that the person on the tape was Sheila Davalu. A co-worker at Purdue testified that the weeks after the murder, she noticed a bad cut on Sheila's hand. Sheila just brushed it off, saying she cut it on a dog food can. But she also countered all the prosecution's points. Her being out of the office, she said, was not out of the ordinary. There were numerous accounts of her being out of the office for hours before the murder occurred. Brought to the stand by her was Gary Riley, the petty criminal police had previously investigated and he told her about how he'd seen a man and a woman arguing at the condominium that day. So she actually made valid points when she argued that the phone call evidence wasn't solid. Despite the software recognizing her voice, several of those close to her couldn't honestly say whether it was her or not. Even her ex-husband Paul couldn't say. There was the lack of DNA. The prosecution didn't have hair or fiber evidence. Yes, they had the blood drop from the bathroom and the DNA match, but a blood drop doesn't say that she was there that day. And when it came to Nelson, she threw him under the bus and insinuated that he might be the killer. He later had to admit to her that he lied to the police. However, he lied about the relationship to protect her from going through the same thing That he had just been through with them. Sheila pointed out that he had a swollen red knuckle at the time of the murder and scratches on his back. She dismissed the notion that she was an obsessed woman who knocked off her rival. Nelson was just, quote, a summer fling. However, this defense fell flat. After the second day, the jury came back with a guilty of first-degree murder. Annalisa's parents spoke at the sentencing hearing, and when it was Sheila's turn to speak, she acted more like it was an acceptance speech than a sentencing hearing. Thanking everyone from the jailers to the defense attorney who helped her during the trial, she then went on to say that she hoped the punishment given to her would bring the Reimundo some kind of closure. She would never accept responsibility for Annalisa's death, but made it seem like she was willing to be a martyr to make the Raimundos feel better. The judge wasn't moved by her speech. He sentenced her to 50 years, and that would be served after her 25-year sentence of attempted murder in New York. After that, she would be transferred to Connecticut to serve out the murder sentence. After the trial, Paul became close to the Raimundos. If he hadn't been stabbed, The murder of their daughter might never have come to light. He joked with them, what's a little stabbing between friends? Annalise's sister, Bernadette, went on to have her own family after the death of her sister. Her firstborn was named Annalise, after her aunt. Bernadette says her daughter is like her sister, fiery, loving, and thoughtful. Sheila has only recently spoke about what happened when she talked to Pierce Morgan for his series, Women Who Kill. He met with her at the Bedford Hills Maximum Security Prison, where she's serving her first term. Still maintaining her innocence, she does say she's, quote, far from innocent without really elaborating. And out of all the women he interviewed for the series, he said he found her to be the most dangerous. Her high level of intelligence combined with her obsession was just frightening to him. I only watched part of the episode. She's still working on appeals, so she'll never admit to anything. And even though she was very clever about covering up her affair, she still had motive to kill. Combined with the DNA evidence and the testimony against her, there was enough to convict the case still sticks with those involved. Greg Holt says cops always have that one case that really gets to them. And for him, this was the one. When they spoke with the Reimundo's about the daughter, the death of their daughter, he says he'll never forget the look in her mother's eyes. He felt then and there that they had to solve this crime. This was a young, successful woman and the prime of her life. He said he thinks of Annalisa all the time. I, for one, think it would be very interesting to see a psychological profile of Sheila Davalou. I would probably pick her as a sociopath. She seemed very relentless in getting her way. So that was the story of the murder of Annaliso Raimundo. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for the podcast, you can find me on social media. There's the Red Room blonde Facebook group and the Facebook page, as well as the Twitter page and Instagram. Keep your eye out for Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be There in the Dark, which is coming out at the end of the month. I've read it and it's absolutely phenomenal. I was just told on the new season of Criminology that they will be focusing on the East Area Rapist, so that should be very interesting have also noticed a new CNN show that's coming up, and they're going to focus on that crime also. Lately, I've been binging a lot of the Canadian podcast Dark Poutine, and honestly, it's definitely one of the best out there. I love, love, love it. The hosts find that fine balance between telling serious parts of the story with some great humor, and their production is definitely top-notch. My other favorite recent is the Asian Madness podcast. It's also relatively new, and one you'll want to check out. And I was excited to see Justin from Generation Y on the new Crime to Remember. And that was about the inspiration for In Cold Blood, the murder of the Clutter family. Sometimes for me that shows a hit or miss, but that episode was definitely first rate. And oddly, for the first time, I'm reading In Cold Blood. I've never read it before, I'm ashamed to say. So it's very good. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to us on ACAST. And if that's not the platform you use, there are several others like iTunes and a variety of other things. And if you're a fan of the show and you would be so kind, please leave a five-star review. I'll be back next week with another interesting case. Thanks for listening.
2: Planning for your next trip?